Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, you have been good to us here at RBC, and we praise you for it. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for opening our eyes to our sin and our need for Christ, and for opening our eyes to him, to see his glory, and to bring us to him in faith. We thank you for your spirit who opens the word for us as well, and opens our minds to understand, and we pray that this evening you will bless us in that way, that your spirit will open our eyes and our minds to understand your word, particularly as it uh, refers to this wonderful hope throughout the Old Testament of Jesus coming, and our view to him today as well. Give us a new appreciation for him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 3. Now, as I've said, before we got to the Messianic Psalms, I backed up and gave some of the Messianic hope that preceded the Psalms. We saw it from Genesis 1 onward. We saw it in Genesis, Numbers 24. We saw it in Deuteronomy 18. We saw it in 1 Samuel 2. And then especially in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we have the promise of David, uh, David's son will reign. And we see it, saw a little bit then in the Psalms how that promise is reflected. We'll see more of that in the Psalms in our morning expositions when we go to some, of, particularly some of the royal Psalms uh, that speak specifically to it. And then, as I've said, we want to back up now in the evening and look more at this messianic promise in the Old Testament. And I'm going to continue what I've done, and that is tracing it in um, chronological order. So rather than canonical order, uh, after Psalms moving forward, we'll take it in chronological order, and the earliest writing prophet is the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 3 is a remarkable prophecy, but in order to understand it, we really have to back up to Hosea chapters 1 and 2 as well, so we'll try to rush through that. Several of the prophets, as you know, if you've read them at all, symbolized their prophecies in various ways. That is, they not only announced their prophecies, predictions of what would come, but they had to act them out in various ways. And so you have one who's lying on his side, and then on the other side, and you have one eating kind of bread that was kind of crummy, and then you have another who's walking around without adequate clothing, and you have various kinds of demonstrations of the prophecies uh, that they make. We find that it's not infrequent, it's, it's uh, in the, in the uh, prophets. Hosea is in a class by himself in that regard because he's not acting out a prophecy. It is his own life that becomes an illustrated prophecy of what God will do. And so we have his marriage in particular and then his children and the names they are given. And all of this has symbolic value for the prophecy that he gives when we come to chapter 3. So we will back up to chapter 1 then before we get to chapter 3. For the sake of time, I had better hurry with that. Um, he is, Hosea is the only of the writing prophets to live in the northern kingdom. Uh, he probably lived in the latter reign of King Jeroboam. This is probably around 735 B.C. 
This is Israel's golden years. They had been strong uh, up to that point militarily. They were stable, but they were in complete apostasy. And during Hosea's time and to follow, we see them we see them crumbling as Hosea prophesied would happen. And overall, Hosea's prophecy is a prophecy of warning, a warning of judgment to come. Typical of the prophets, Hosea not only gives warning, but now and then crops up a note of hope as well. And we'll see that with the Messianic reference in chapter 3. And there's also one cryptically made in chapter 1. So chapters 1 and 2 then set the stage for chapter 3. Chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now notice the little explanatory conjunction in the middle of the verse, 4. So here he's telling us explicitly that Hosea's experience is to be an acted prophecy, an illustration of what will come to pass. Go take yourself to a wife of whoredom, have children of 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 whoredom, because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Isaiah's marriage is an illustration of Israel. Gomer, his wife... I was going to say, never mind, I'm not going to say that. Gomer, his wife, um, is the symbol then for Israel herself. And just as his wife, um, is a pro- she prostitutes herself, so Israel has prostituted herself in going after false gods. And that's the larger context then that will follow. Now, you'll notice that word for, by the way. Again, in verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, and that carries on this acted prophecy from Hosea's experience. Now, part of it then is not only marry this wife who prostitutes herself, but also now when you have children, we're going to name them. And the first son, the first is a son in verse 3, call his name Jezreel. That means God will scatter. As like when you're sowing seed, Planting, you throw the seed, and then he gives the illustration, or he explains. Call his name, God will scatter, because, or for, in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for, blood, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, verses 4 and 5 then explain that judgment on Israel will come. It's fulfilled finally in 722 B.C. when God destroyed Israel and spared Judah, as Pastor Boyd mentioned briefly this morning. Then we come to verses 6 and 7. Now, Hosea's wife has a daughter, and the Lord said to him, verse 6, call her name. Now, depending on which translation you have, you might have the Hebrew transliterated here, uh, lo ruhama, which means call her name no mercy, no mercy. You might have it spelled out depending on which version you have. The Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for 
I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. Again, this fulfilled in 722. God destroyed Israel. Uh, Judah miraculously uh, rescued from the advance of the Assyrian armies. And then verse 9, he has, her wife has another child, this time a son. Call his name, and again, depending which version you have, Lo-Ami, or not my people. Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So we have a, a divorce decree of some kind, whether it's a formal actual divorce or not. It's that kind of language, and God is terminating his relationship with Israel. Call them not my people. That's the language of the covenant. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And now he says, you'll not be my people. So call you this son's name, Lo-Ami, not my people, because you are not my people. And that again fulfilled 722 BC when the northern kingdom was destroyed and the people were deported uh, off into the Assyrian Empire where they assimilated. So all of this is symbol laden. He has a wife who's a harlot. That's Israel who's uh, not faithful to God, not faithful to her covenant vows to God. And the children then symbolize by their name what God will do to Israel because of her unfaithfulness. Then we come to verse 10. And we have a surprising turn here. Yet the number, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. That's the language of Genesis 22 in the Abrahamic covenant. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So there's this great reversal that will come. Tell them they're not my people, but a time is coming when they'll be called children of the living God. So because of their apostasy, they will be cut off. But the Abrahamic covenant still stands. He quotes it. They've been unfaithful, and so they'll be judged. But God will not be unfaithful to the covenant promise that he made to Abraham. And they will be called children of the living God. And as a result, verse 11, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So he says he'll reunite the nation. They'll be gathered together, and they too will have one head. It's pretty clear that this is a cryptic reference to the Messiah that we will see later in chapter 3. One head is one king to rule over the nation. God had promised that David that his son would rule over the entire nation. Here Hosea uh, repeats that promise. It will come and it says they'll go up from the land. That's Exodus language. They'll come up from the land. Um, it's a frequent kind of language that we find in the prophets, uh, speaking of a new exodus that will happen. He'll return them from their time of captivity and their time of dispersion among the nations. That there's no record at all of Israel ever, the northern kingdom, the captives ever returning. So this looks ahead to a greater deliverance to come uh, by Messiah. And we find that in the New Testament. So the highlights so far then are that one, God will judge Israel 
Two, God will reunite Israel and Judah, restore the nation. And number three, Israel will recognize her new king. They'll unite under one head. All right, that brings us to chapter 2, and all this is very quick, but we we have to have it in mind. Chapter 2 then unpacks the symbolism a little bit further. He begins with a plea, uh, say to your brothers, you are my people, to your sisters, you have received mercy. Remember, that's a play on the names of the children that were given to Gomer's uh, and Hosea's uh, children. Then verse 2, plead with your mother, that's Israel, Plead with your mother, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And then verse 3, he gives a warning. Lest I strip her naked, and here this symbolism plays both ways. It's figurative with regard to Israel, and it is very literal with regard to Gomer and what will happen to her, as we'll see in chapter 3. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day when she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who can Receive them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me, uh, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, the following verses in chapter 2 are marked off, the sections of this rest of chapter 2 are marked off by the word therefore. You'll see it in verse 6, verse 9, and then again in verse 14. We'll follow that. Therefore, so we've had this plea for Israel to be faithful and come back, and there's a warning lest God's judgment will come. Therefore, verse 6, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now." And she did not know, and here's the biographical element, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So Israel has been blessed in many ways. They didn't recognize that God was the one who had given that to them. So also Gomer evidently now has taken off, gone with another lover. It doesn't work out well. She's stuck in a terrible spot. And Hosea now, out of compassion and love for his wife, can't bear to see her in such difficult spots. And so he starts providing the food for her, the grain, the wine, the money that is needed. And she didn't know that it was Hosea doing it. So you get this picture here of Hosea meeting her lover out in the marketplace somewhere or whatever and he says look I know there's hard times and you can't afford it I want you to take take this and make sure that Gomer gets well fed and the guy must have looked at him and said well there's no fool like an old fool yeah I'll take it and he takes it home and says look what I got for you honey and she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine the oil and lavished her with silver and gold. So also Israel didn't recognize God's blessing. Verse 9, another therefore. Therefore I'll take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I'll take away my wool and my flax, cover her nakedness. And things are going to get worse now. So he describes in the following verses the worsening conditions for Israel and in turn the 
to go return to the biography, the worsening conditions that Gomer will experience as well. We'll see that in chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 14, begins with our third, therefore. But here again, like we had in chapter 1, we have a surprising turn. God is pictured as the as a uh, lover courting his beloved and winning her back and wooing her back. And in fact, he says, I'll make a covenant with her, establish a new covenant. So verse 14, therefore, now you're expecting here, therefore, I'll really give it to Israel and I'll smash her and that'll be the end of that. Instead, what it says is, therefore, behold, I will allure her. And I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal or my master. For I will reprove, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." And the day that I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. Now notice here the pun going on, you named a child scatter because God will scatter Israel, that sowing idea, but the scattering can mean spreading out but it also can have the pun the idea of planting and sowing in that sense and he plays on that here verse 23 i'll sow her for myself in the land and i will have mercy on no mercy and i will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say you are my god again this is the language of the covenant we find it back in leviticus chapter 26 where God set promises in covenant that you'll be my people, I'll be your God. And now that language is picked up. In other words, the relationship is restored. In verse 18, he's going to make a covenant with them. Clearly a reference to the new covenant. Some of that language is here. Like in verse 20, they shall know the Lord. That's clearly the language of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah chapter 31, also in Ezekiel 26, other places. So recall chapter 1 and verse 11. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. It seems to be what he's saying again now by the end of, verse 18, end of chapter 2, that there'll be this great reversal, and God will win them back. All right, all of that then is the backdrop of this remarkable prophecy of chapter 3. Verses 1 to 5. Here we have, uh, Hosea resumes the uh, symbolism of his marriage. In verse 1, the Lord 
gives a command to Hosea, tells him what to do. Verses 2 and 3, Hosea carries out that command. And then verses 4 and 5, the Lord interprets it or explains what it all means and symbolizes. So verse 1, God's command to Hosea, go love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now that's a reference to um, part of the pagan feasts. The raisin cakes was part of it, and so that's the reference there. They turn to other gods and, and love raisin cakes. So now she's away from Hosea. She's with another man. Even as, that's the language he uses, even as, that makes the symbolism explicit, his wife illustrates what Israel has done. She's run off with another guy. Israel has run off to other gods. And God loves her, though. And even though he loves her, Israel loves raisin cakes. She loves the pagan feasts. So, verse 2, Hosea carries out what he was told to do. So I bought her. That's the language of redemption. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lettuce of barley. So now Gomer is now being sold, presumably as a slave, maybe from her pimp. Um, anyway, she's up on the auction block, presumably because of debt. And Hosea now finds his wandering wife on the auction block, being sold as a slave. She's stripped naked, use the language of chapter 2. She's destitute. She's up on the auction block to be sold. We saw that, you remember, back in chapter 2, verse 3, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. Chapter 2, verse 10, I'll uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. So Hosea unbelievably, finds his wife on the auction block, stripped naked, and God commanded him to love her. And he says, I love her. I'll buy her back. And so it gives you the price of the, of the transaction. He buys her back, and now Gomer is back with Hosea, and now he owns her. She's his by way of redemption. She belongs to him. And so verse 3, he says, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. The idea here is that there'll be no conjugal relations of any kind now, not with another man and for a time, not even with Hosea though she is his, his uh, wife, and he's, she's been brought back to him. There's a temporary, some kind of a probationary guideline here before the relationship is finally restored and the marriage consummated again. So Gomer has to abstain from prostitution, uh, even from relations with her husband. And then at some time, he doesn't say exactly when, at some point she can regain marital relations with Hosea. So God gives the command, verse 1, verse 2 and 3, Hosea carries it out, and now verses 4 and 5 interpret the symbolism. Verse 4, notice 4, for the children of Israel, so here's the interpretation, what's happened with Gomer is what will happen with Israel, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king 
or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Now, the king or prince, that is their national identity with their Davidic king as a ruler, without sacrifice or pillar, that evidently is the Mosaic sacrifice. They won't have that. Without pillar, that is without the pagan sacrifices either, and without um, ephod or household gods. The ephod was part of the priestly garments in the Mosaic Code, um, in the priestly system, the uh, household gods. Uh, that's the teraphim that you read of in Genesis and other places. So they won't have their own worship system. They won't have a pagan worship system. They won't have their king. They won't have their own sacrifice. They won't have pagan sacrifices. It's kind of a neutral, kind of a pagan state, uh, kind of a neutral state or a secular state even. So just as Gomer was being restricted, that's verse 3, no relations with her husband or with anybody else, so for a period of time, Israel will be without a monarchy, without a priesthood, and yet without idols either. And so she's lacking completely her political and religious symbols of distinction. And this, he says, will happen Verse 4, for many days. And this has, it's a remarkable prophecy. This has been Israel's condition since the exiles up until today. One commentator writes, since her exile to varying degrees, Israel has lived without the full implementations of her national and religious systems. She has also been chased. Idolatry was cleansed from the land following the Babylonian exile And Israel has largely remained zealous in her rejection of paganism since then. From the exile forward, she has not had a king or prince, but has lived under the political domination of foreign kings. Although the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel and the law was reinstituted under Ezra, Israel has remained in a religious and political state of limbo. So it's a remarkable prophecy that brings us up even to contemporary times. Verse 5 tells us then, chapter 3, that this situation will not be permanent. There is, as, as one uh, commentator has famously put it, there's that glorious afterwards. Verse 5, afterward, that, that is after this situation just described, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So again, we have the idea of this great reversal that will come. Israel will do three things. She'll return, seek, and come. That's the language he uses. They're all pointing, I think, to the same idea. Israel will return. That's the typical word signifying repentance. Some people have um, wanted that one to refer to a return to the land. Um, I don't think that's what the word signifies there. This is the typical word for repentance. Uh, Turning away from false gods is the idea. She'll return and seek. That is the positive side of repentance. She'll uh, turn back to God. She'll turn away from her idols, turn back to God. And in fact, it says to the Lord, their God. Again, that's the covenant language that's used. Her, Her God. Yahweh, they'll turn back to her. They'll return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And here is Hosea's explicit mention of the Messiah. 
the Davidic house, David's greater son. This is building on 2 Samuel chapter 7. Clearly, this kind of thing appears often in the prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You'll find that a branch from David will come and he'll rule over them. And, and Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, other passages in Ezekiel as well, that uh, I'll put over them one shepherd and David shall rule over them. And, and so on. Many of those passages are familiar in the prophets. That's what Hosea is saying as well. They'll, re- they'll turn away from their idolatry, turn to God and to David, their king. Now, the end of verse 5 adds, they shall come in fear to the Lord. That is with trembling. Genuine repentance for the magnitude of their sins And finally, they recognize God, they recognize their sin, and they come in fear and repentance. In other words, then just as in verse uh, 2, Hosea brought Gomer back, so now God will bring Israel back. And it's difficult to miss, particularly with the language of redemption being used, that he has bought her back through the work of Christ. Last part of verse 5 Hints, then, of the consequences of Israel's repentance. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Remember chapter 1, verse 11. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And then again in chapter 2, verse 18, I'll make for them a covenant on that day. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I'll make you lie down in safety. I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Well, this is a familiar note in the prophets. We find it frequently through the prophets. There's prophets of judgment that will come, and then these notes of hope arise. Israel return to God, to the Lord, or return to a time of blessing, but only when she returns to the Lord in repentance. So, for many days, Israel will be in this limbo state, without her own distinction, without her own sacrifices, and so on. But God will buy her back, and afterwards she'll return, she'll seek, and she'll come. All right, some observations here, and then uh, some notes about interpretation and some of the differences that come with that. First, some observations about Messiah. First of all, what we learn here is what we should know already, and that is Messiah will be a descendant of David. They'll return to David, their king. It's hard to miss 2 Samuel 7 in that. Number two, and this is fascinating, and we'll see this more in in the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Messiah is closely associated with Yahweh, and yet he's distinguished from him. They'll return to the Lord and to David their king. Return to the Lord their God and David their king. You can't return to the Lord your God without returning to the Davidic king. You can't return to David, your king, without returning to the Lord. There's some close association. I think there are overtones here of the deity of Messiah. He's the son of David. He's also the son of God. We'll see much of that in some some of the other prophecies where it's even more clear than that. Uh, But that's common in the, the David prophecies. 
Third thing about the Messiah here is that he'll rule then over the entire nation, that they will all come and they'll acknowledge together one head. It will be David, their king. And then a few observations about Israel. One, the passage promises a future of promised blessing. That lies on the surface of the passage. Number two, she will never have this blessing apart from repentance from sin and acknowledgement of her Messiah. Number three, she will in fact repent and acknowledge her her Messiah. There'll be this great reversal that we see in chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. Chapter three, verse five, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And that will conclude her time of exile. And there'll be this, what I mentioned earlier, this glorious afterward. All right, now for the things that are making some of you nervous, what about time frame, fulfillment, and how does all of this work out? Verse 5 tells us that this will be afterwards, in the latter days. Afterward, the children of Israel shall, come, shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Afterwards, um, that is after this time described in verse 4, after that time will be in the latter days. Uh, expression latter days consistently in the prophets refers to the time of the Messiah. As that unfolds in the New Testament, the time of the Messiah is today where the kingdom is inaugurated and it is culminated finally in the return of Christ. And in any given, any given uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, you have to discern exactly where it refers to, uh, whether the, it is referring to being fulfilled now and today or later at the time of the return of Christ. It seems to me that this is very clearly a reference to the a prophecy of the return of Christ when Israel acknowledges her Messiah and receives him as such. Uh, that just seems to me to lie on the surface of the passage. And I think there's one important passage in the New Testament that's often overlooked uh, that refers to this and to the similar prophecies. And if you will look at that in Matthew chapter 23. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 In this chapter, Jesus, like Hosea and like so many of the prophets, is castigating Israel for her unbelief and says that, and finally pronouncing judgment on her and all of these successive woes that he gives uh, to Israel throughout chapter 23. And then we have this lament in verses 37 and following. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's just like the prophets. And also just like the prophets, Jesus says, for I tell you, verse 39, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' explicit statement that Israel one day will receive her Messiah and acknowledge her as such, and one day she will say, blessed is he. Well, again, this is familiar in the prophets. We see it often 
I think, and I'd like to discuss it at length, but we can't tonight, but Romans 11 uh, tells us the same, that those who are cut off and cast away will be brought back in. Some more notes on interpretation. Among the Reformed, the interpretation of this passage historically has been somewhat mixed. Uh, Post-millennialists, many of the Puritans, have read it just at face value. It looks like a time when Israel will say, blessed is he, and they'll acknowledge her king, David, her king. Um, That has been a, a... Uh, a very frequent uh, take that is taken. I'm not sure if we can say majority, but it might be, historically speaking. Today, among amillennialist interpreters, they will refer this passage to um, to a prophecy of Israel to the church. So it's the church that will receive her Messiah. Some of them will say that it's the remnant that will receive it. I don't think myself that either of those interpretations handles the reversal idea that is so prominent in Hosea 1, 2, and 3. And in fact, John Murray, who's a prominent amillennial interpreter, um, took strong exception to those who argue that way. And he pointed to Matthew 23, verse 39, as one of the proof texts, uh, saying we just can't deny that one of the precursors, he said, to the return of Christ will be the repentance of Israel. Whether that happens sometime before or at the return of Christ, he said, can't be uh, finally determined, but... But it is a precursor of the return of Christ. There it is. Israel will say, when Jesus comes, blessed is he. Uh, Murray also refers to Romans 11 uh, for the same. Now, then none of this settles the millennial question, but uh, premillennialists usually have taken this interpretation. Uh, dispensational premillennialists certainly have. Uh, but I think it's the, past, the one that takes the uh, passage at its face value. A couple of quotes from others, some Reformed guys. From Jim, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, pastor at 10th Press down in Philadelphia uh, for many years. In view of this verse, this is Hosea 3 verse 5. In view of this verse, I do not see how so many scholars can deny that there will be a regathering of Israel and a national repentance of Israel in those last days that are yet to come. Some will say that the promise has already been fulfilled. Israel was scattered in the period following the falls of Samaria and Jerusalem, but she was regathered at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Unfortunately, this regathering does not fit the prophecies. During that period, there was no king, as Hosea clearly foretells, and there was no true national repentance. In fact, that period climaxed in the rejection of God's Messiah. And then everyone's favorite Charles Spurgeon on Hosea 3, verse 5. A brief word may suffice on this prophecy. I think that no reader of Holy Scripture can doubt but that the seed of Abraham, however long they may be in blindness, will at the last obey the Messiah, Jesus, the son of David. And in those days, the goodness of God to them will be so extraordinary that they shall fear and wonder at it, constrained by the gratitude that they will be numbered among the most earnest servants of the Lord. May the Lord hasten so blessed a consummation in his own time. Oh, that the happy days would dawn when Israel's son shall be acknowledged shall acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, to be the Messiah that was promised of old. 
All right, so we're looking at these messianic prophecies. Many of these prophecies will look to Jesus' birth. Some will talk about his work, his miracles, some about his death. We'll see that in Isaiah 53. Uh, Usually the messianic prophecies speak of his rule. Hosea chapter 3, I think, tells us very plainly that the Messiah will be recognized by Israel in days yet to come. Again, verse 5, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. All right. Next time, I think we will look at either Amos or Micah next time for a messianic prophecy. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful particularly for your word of your Son, the great Redeemer, to come. How we long for the day that is given just a glimpse of here when the Lord Jesus will come. The world will acknowledge him as the rightful king that he is. Lord, we pray that you will hasten that day. Until then, we pray that you will keep us faithful to him. In his name we pray, amen.